Welcome into Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace. Coming at you, it is Monday, February 12th, one day after the Super Bowl. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it more than I did. I definitely did not enjoy last night's game, despite the fact it was really fun to watch. New England Patriots fan myself, of course, so didn't really want Mahomes getting his third ring, kind of chasing Brady a little bit there, but we did not need to go into that today. We are, of course, talking about my reaction to the NBA trade deadline, and of course, as you guys can see by the title of this episode, the biggest winners and losers of the NBA trade deadline. So yes, it was a little bit of a dud, so we're going to get into all of the relevant deals anyways, and of course, again, go through the winners and the losers. But before we get into that, today marks one year of words with Wallace. I did come to you guys for the first time ever after last year's Super Bowl, the day after. So uh, just wanted to say thank you guys for anyone that has ever listened to the show, enjoyed the show, shared the show, told a friend, whatever. Uh, definitely means a lot to me. There's a lot of you guys out there that listen. I know this isn't the biggest NBA podcast out there by any means, but for anyone that did show support, even if you just watch the reels, even if you just follow on social media, shoot me a like every now and again, anything helps. And I don't know exactly how long I'm going to be doing this podcast for, but I can promise you guys, as long as I am doing this podcast, you're going to get my full effort and energy into this podcast. I'm going to be as diligent of an NBA fan, as diligent of an NBA watcher, uh, always learning more about the game too. So whatever I learn, I will share here on this podcast and just really appreciate you guys sticking with me, man. I know that there's a lot of incredible NBA content out there. So the fact that any of you guys choose to make this podcast a part of your weekly routine, or even if you check in every once in a while, definitely means a lot to me. So thank you guys for that. Definitely looking forward to finishing the year strong to say the least. So without further ado, let's dive into the NBA trade deadline. And again, I know that the hype of the deadline did not quite deliver for a lot of you guys out there. I know there was a lot of hype about maybe the Lakers make a move. LeBron James is out there tweeting hourglass emojis. He's not exactly happy with the state of the team. You got guys like Donovan Mitchell that I reported months ago might be shipped before Thursday's deadline. And, you know, we really didn't see any star players move, to say the least. We didn't have that one blockbuster. We didn't have that one massive move that came out of left field. But we did see a lot of the teams that are going to be competing for an NBA title in just a few short months really jockeying for position at the top, made some pretty relevant moves to kind of fortify their bench, fortify their roster, get that extra piece that they need that they believe will get them over the hump and contend for a title. And so there is still a lot to talk about. So again, I'm not going to go through every move. I think that would be pretty irrelevant. There were some kind of no-name moves out there that definitely is not worth the breath for me to go into them and, and kind of explain what exactly that represents. But we are going to kind of start at the top and go through again all of the relevant deals from the deadline. Let's start off close to home with my Boston Celtics. They did go out and get that backup big man position I've been talking about all year long. So in case you guys missed it, the Celtics did pick up Xavier Tillman from the Memphis Grizzlies in exchange for Lamar Stevens and two second round picks. So I was on this one. Uh, I guess I technically got the final details of the deal wrong. I, I projected on my last podcast from last week saying that I thought the Celtics were going to go grab Nick Richards from the Charlotte Hornets in exchange for a first round pick because Richards has a few more years left on his contract. But overall, I'm pretty happy with this deal, right? I know Tillman has been in some playoff games for the Memphis Grizzlies. He's been a pretty important rotation piece for them the past couple years, providing depth behind Jaron Jackson was a part of probably the highlight of the year when he jumped at Anthony Edwards and Edwards threw it off the glass and then dunked it. Uh, was a pretty smooth take, so not going to hold that against Tillman because overall, again, I've been saying really all year long for this Celtics team that I felt like their number one priority before the deadline was to pick up that extra big just because Kristaps Porzingis 
obviously has a very lengthy injury history and we really need him out there. Also, Al Horford, our next best big man, is decomposing as we speak. I love Al, but he is absolutely ancient out there. And we really can't afford to be putting a ton of minutes on him leading up to the playoffs. And of course, even throughout that playoff run, we need him to hold up through a full four series, unlike last year where he started pretty strong and then kind of tailed off. Uh, obviously in that Miami series. So with that being said, I'm happy about it. It was funny. I was talking about this deal with one of my buddies and I was like, yeah, I like Tillman. You know, I know he's a little undersized. He's only six, seven, but you know, can space the floor a little bit. And my buddy's like, yeah, but he actually can't because my buddy thought the same thing. And then we actually looked at the stats and realized that Tillman has been a pretty abysmal shooter really anywhere outside of the paint this year. And then even from the free throw line, he's actually shooting about 40% this year from the line. So not great stuff at a Tillman, so that definitely made me a little less excited about the move because I know a lot of Celtics fans out there were hoping that the Seas were going to go get Andre Drummond, and I was like, yeah, but, you know, Drummond really can't shoot, and he can't make free throws, and but I guess Tillman can't either, and Tillman's 6'7", while, while Drummond is, is at least 7 feet tall and, and just feels like a monster out there, but whatever. Bottom line is the Celtics paid a very small price for Xavier Tillman, and they secured another backup big man that can give them hopefully better minutes than what Luke Cornett or Keita could provide for this team. So overall, it makes sense from the Grizzlies. They did not really need Xavier Tillman with the way their season is shook out. And for the Celtics to get that extra big instead of maybe an extra guard or an extra backup wing, I think they made the right decision prioritizing that big man spot. The next deal we have here was the Minnesota Timberwolves, again, one of the top seeds in the Western Conference all year long, adding back up guard depth if you remember maybe a couple months ago at this point in time actually when I had my guy Garrett my resident Minnesota Timberwolves expert on the podcast he was preaching to us saying the number one thing that this team needed was a backup guard he suggested a few backup point guards and Monty Morris is in that role and that's exactly who they picked up the Timberwolves did receive Monty Morris from the Detroit Pistons in exchange for Troy Brown Jr. Shake Milton and a 2030 second round pick so again, the Pistons, again, they did not really need Monty Morris. I actually kind of forgot he was there, to be entirely honest with you. And he's a guy that's actually been in some big games for Denver. He obviously was not a part of Denver's championship run last year, but he was on the Nuggets for the previous few seasons before that. And Denver did have some postseason success, and Monty Morris was a part of that as a backup point guard. So for the Wolves to kind of fortify that position, they really weren't going to be able to go out there and get productive minutes in the playoffs, I don't think, from guys like Shake Milton, guys like Jordan McLaughlin's just too small. So having Monty Morris, having a guy that can shoot a decent clip and run the offense off the bench, hopefully that helps out the Timberwolves, but I definitely like that move on paper at least. Moving on to the next deal, this one was actually pretty interesting. And again, we are starting with some of the smaller deals here. The Raptors acquiring Kelly Olynyk from the Utah Jazz. In this deal, the Raptors received not just Kelly Olynyk, but they also received Ochai Abaji, the first round pick from the Jazz last year, I want to say, or actually he was selected by Cleveland and he was a part of that Laurie Markkinen trade as well. But either way, he's off to Toronto now in exchange for Otto Porter Jr., Kira Lewis, and a 2024 first round pick. So it's a pretty curious move from the Raptors because you wouldn't really expect them to be giving up any draft capital at this point in time with the way that the Raptors season is projecting out. They've been pretty unsuccessful so far, we'll say, even after the trade deadline and the move to get R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly. So it is interesting that maybe they just saw some value in Ochai Abachi and, and Kelly Olynyk. Olynyk obviously being a really solid role player that I'd imagine with time left on his contract after this season could even have some value in the offseason if they want to flip him. And Ochai could be a younger piece that they want to add to that core. So I don't necessarily hate the first round pick price. It's just 
kind of curious to see a team in the Raptors position being the one to give away draft picks instead of trying to acquire them. So I don't quite understand that. And then from the Jazz perspective, again, I really like Ochai Abaji and Kelly Olynyk's been solid for them. But at the same time, they have a lot of guys in that team. And if you can get another 2024 first round pick for a Jazz team that is presumably rebuilding, even though they've been sneaky competitive the past couple seasons, I think it, the deal makes sense for both sides. And I just don't really know exactly what the Raptors angle was on that. But then again, I do really like Ochai. So let's see how he does in Toronto. Moving on here, we actually are going to focus strictly on the Dallas Mavericks because they made three moves that I think were pretty controversial. I know Mavs fans out there on my Twitter timeline are certainly celebrating like they already should be scheduling the parade in Dallas in just a few short months. And then there's some other folks out there that are a little bit more critical of the Mavericks deals. The first deal was with the Oklahoma City Thunder, in which the Mavericks received a 2024 first round pick, I believe, again, of the Oklahoma City Thunders that would project as a late first round pick in this draft class, which for the record is projected out to be a pretty weak draft class in exchange for a 2028 first round pick swap with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So again, I've been talking about this for seemingly the entirety of my podcast that the Thunder have so many draft picks that they are going to have to start compiling some of these picks and exchanging some, you know, maybe two crappier picks for a better pick, right? And that's kind of what the Thunder did in this situation, right? They recognized that their first round pick this year was not going to be that great of a pick in, in all likelihood. And so they opted to swap that pick in exchange for the option to have a literal pick swap in 2028 with the Dallas Mavericks. Because the way that things are going for the Mavericks, Luka could be pretty on a pretty short list of unhappy superstars that demands a trade within the next few seasons. So Thunder are looking at it like, hey, there's a good chance that the Mavericks absolutely implode by 2028, and that pick could end up being a top five, top 10 pick in the draft. But that's a gamble worth taking for the Thunder. So I kind of respect that move, and that's why the Mavericks were able to take a swap and turn that into an additional guaranteed first. And that initial move set up the following deal that I thought was really impactful for the Dallas Mavericks, and it is their deal with the Washington Wizards to acquire another big man. In this move, the Mavericks received Daniel Gafford in exchange for Rashawn Holmes and a 2024 first-round pick of the Thunder. Again, that pick that they just got from the Thunder. They packaged that pick with Rashawn Holmes to then go and receive Daniel Gafford. So I like this move. I've, I've obviously mentioned Gafford on the past few podcasts as a desirable backup big option that a few contending teams could look to pick up. He's a really talented shot blocker. Despite being a little undersized, I want to say he's only like 6'9", 6'10", out there. But he plays a lot bigger than that on the court, plays with a lot of energy. He's a really great vertical threat as well, seems to get up pretty high on lobs and whatnot. So I understand why the Mavericks would look to, a, you know, fortify that backup big position. Lively has been really good for them this year, but he's been banged up a lot. Kleber's been dealing with his own injuries. And then Dwight Powell is just inevitable, right? Like he always seems to be playing like 20-something minutes a game for the Mavericks, despite the fact that, again, I'm sure he's a good guy, but the brother stinks and does not belong in the NBA. So they needed to fortify that position. And in a nutshell, I like that move, right? Is that Could that deal look really bad in a few years just because they basically took that pick and turned it into Daniel Gafford in exchange for what could end up being a lottery pick in 2028? 20, Sure, but right now they're trying to keep Luka happy, so I don't hate that move it within itself. And then finally, the third move, they actually swapped with the Charlotte Hornets to receive P.J. Washington and two second-round picks in exchange for Grant Williams, Seth Curry, and their 2027 first-round pick en route to Charlotte. So, again, the Mavericks, they signed Grant Williams in the offseason. I know that Grant Williams is a pretty polarizing player. He's definitely very hot and cold, I would know, with him being a part of the Celtics team that the last few years. 
But overall, I think Grant's a good player, right? You know what he's going to do. He's going to sit in the corner. He's going to shoot threes at a decent clip. He's going to give a lot of effort on defense. But he's been pretty bad for the Mavericks. I mean, let's call it what it is. Maybe it's him struggling to adapt and play alongside a really unique player in Luka, to say the least. Maybe it's just because he's a streaky shooter and he wasn't getting consistent enough minutes to really go out there and perform at a high level. I know it's probably tough for Grant having him come off the bench in favor of a guy in Derek Jones Jr., who I don't really even understand why he's on an NBA team, let alone starting for the Dallas Mavericks all year. I just don't really know what he gives you at this point in time. But either way, it never really felt like Grant got a fair shot in Dallas after having a pretty hot start to the season. And then a few short months later, he's out. And I know the Mavericks are probably pretty excited about receiving P.J. Washington, but that's just a guy that's been kind of rotting away in Charlotte. He's never played in any relevant games where at least Grant Williams had a real moment in a playoff game where he literally helped them beat the Bucs and, and advance past the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, Grant's had has real playoff pedigree, unlike virtually anybody else on the Mavericks besides Kyrie and Luka. So for them to just ship him away in exchange for P.J. Washington, and they had to give up Seth Curry, a guy I like, and again, was out of the rotation in Dallas. And most importantly, the first-round pick in 2027 is one of the last first-round picks that the Mavericks have on this roster. And I do have to point out that I think there's some positional redundancy as well with these few deals that they went out and got Daniel Gafford, somebody that's like a, a four or five man and PJ Washington, who is, you know, primarily a forward kind of like a wing type player, but has also been known to play the small ball five in Charlotte. And I think they could employ that in Dallas as well. And now kudos to Dallas for having far and away the worst front court situation in the league. That situation last year was terrible. And now it's arguably a strength of the team with Gafford and Lively and, and PJ Washington there now too. But I just don't know if that deal makes sense. Like, again, giving up the first-round pick and exchange for Grant Williams, a guy with playoff pedigree, it's a big gamble to make just to get a guy in P.J. Washington that's never really played in a big game. I just think that there were some bigger needs on the Mavericks and what they ended up addressing at the deadline. I think the Gafford deal makes sense. I think the first two moves are good, but they kind of lost me on that final move for P.J. Washington, and I just think this situation is, is starting to get a little desperate, right? I was talking to my buddy Connor about this, and he's like, hey, it, it really does remind me of what that first stint in Cleveland looked like with LeBron, and the Cavs were scrambling. They were bringing guys like Shaq well past his prime, Antoine Jameson past his prime, Ben Wallace past his prime. And I know that these guys are young players and they're not washed up or whatever, but it's just a sign of a scrambling front office that is desperately trying to keep their superstar player happy. And I just don't know if these moves are inevitably going to be enough without making a real big swing that affects the destiny of this Mavericks team. I don't think that these moves do it. I think this team is still in desperate need of a perimeter defender. Like when you look at them, who the Mavericks are going to go up against in the Western Conference playoffs you know you're looking at guys like Devin Booker you're looking at guys like Steph Curry guys like De'Aaron Fox Anthony Edwards your best guard defender on the team who is it is it Josh Green is it Tim Hardaway Jr like I don't know who is guarding the other team's best offensive weapon in virtually any series I mean obviously if they play Denver sure you have a couple more bodies to throw at Jokic like anybody on the planet can stop that guy I just don't know exactly what the Mavs were getting at by not really addressing some of the perimeter defensive concerns in this team and going out and getting some solid assets. But I think for the price they paid, I don't know if it's inevitably going to be worth it. So, again, I don't necessarily hate the moves for the Mavericks because I do think they're a better team for right now, obviously, when the main thing they gave up was draft picks and Grant Williams seemed to not be working out. But overall, I don't really love these moves for the Mavericks. I don't think they're necessarily a loser of the trade deadline. But it's just a situation to watch because the past three years, the Mavericks have convinced themselves that they've made massive swings at the deadline. A couple years ago when they traded away Kristaps Porzingis for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans, like 
that was a good move. Like, people still think that was a good move, which is insane, uh, especially when you look at how good Chris Depps has been this season. Then last year, they make the gamble to pick up Kyrie. And then this year, they trade away some draft picks in exchange for Gafford and Washington. Now, I do like this deadline more than the last few in defense of the Mavericks. But again, it just kind of feels like a desperate team. I think they had some bigger holes that they could have addressed. And I'll be really interested to watch how the new look Mavericks do over the next few months. Apologies for the Mavericks rant there. Let's keep it pushing and talk about another contender in the Milwaukee Bucks. I, I shouldn't say another contender. The Mavs aren't contenders. Anyway, a real contender in the Eastern Conference with the Milwaukee Bucks as they made a swap with the Philadelphia 76ers. And in this move, the Bucks received Patrick Beverly in exchange for campaign in a 2027 second round pick. From the Bucks' perspective, I think it makes sense, right? Obviously, defense has been the name of the game all season for the Bucks and how much they've struggled. Losing Drew Holiday in the offseason, you get a super watered-down McDonald's dollars general version of Drew Holiday and Patrick Beverly, I guess, in the fact that he's obviously a pretty feisty defender. Um, certainly not going to bring you really much of anything at the offensive end of the court at this point in time. But Pat Bev is good in the right, right situations, right? He can give the team a spark. He can certainly get the crowd involved as well. And he can certainly go out there and give 110% effort on defense. I think he's a better fit for that Bucks team than campaign, although there are some question marks about the the who's going to run the Bucks offense off the bench. We'll see what that looks like. It's also worth noting that if you're wondering why the Sixers would want campaign over Patrick Beverly, the reason is because, A, they picked up a 2027 second round pick, as I mentioned. But also the 76ers, I don't think they want to replace Pat Bev with campaign. I don't even know if campaign is going to get waived or what. But the 76ers are planning on signing Kyle Lowry if they haven't already. So Lowry is really the spiritual replacement to Patrick Beverly on that Sixers team. I think that's probably a net neutral, right? Like, I think both guys kind of do the same thing at this point in the career. Obviously, Kyle Lowry probably does it as a little bit higher level because he's been in bigger games. He is an NBA champion and even was a pain in the, the ass for the Celtics last year in that series against Miami. So... That being said, interesting move that the Bucks fortify their defense a little bit there. Next deal we have on our list is another interesting one. I know we were just talking about a contender in the Milwaukee Bucks and some teams at the top, but I just thought that this one was interesting because ultimately it does affect who I believe is a contending team in the Western Conference. This was actually a deal between the Brooklyn Nets and the Toronto Raptors in which the Nets received Dennis Schroeder and Thaddeus Young in exchange for Spencer Dinwiddie. Now, this is notable. I don't really know what the Raptors got out of this deal. It was probably just some sort of cap relief, maybe getting under the luxury tax or some sort of tax penalty. Now, the Raptors, upon receiving Spencer Dinwiddie, actually immediately waived him, and he is planning to sign with the Los Angeles Lakers, if he has not already. So let me just get this out of the way that, in a nutshell, I love that deal for the Nets, right? Like, obviously, removing the salary cap from this situation, I think Dennis Schroeder is a much, much more talented player than Spencer Dinwiddie at this point in time. Thaddeus Young is obviously a, the definition of a vet at this point that's played on a million different teams. So hopefully those guys can be like a steadying presence in the Nets locker room, even though the Nets are not going to contend for anything this season. I think it's a cute story, right? Everyone loves to talk about the Lakers and them getting another guard. But I just think Spencer Dinwiddie is, is easily one of the most overrated players in the entire NBA. He's, he's one of my least favorite players to watch. If you play Spencer Dinwiddie, you're playing Spencer Dinwiddie ball. He doesn't give you really anything on the defensive end of the court. Sometimes it, it looks like he is, but he's really not doing anything on defense. His shooting numbers, I believe, are down pretty significantly this season. And the Lakers are going to be in a much better spot if they just get Gabe Vincent healthy because he's going to be an infinitely better backup guard for that Lakers team than Spencer Dinwiddie will ever be. So I just wanted to mention it because Dinwiddie ended up on a contender. So it's, it's worth noting exactly how that went down. 
But ultimately, I think it makes the Lakers possibly a worse team if he's out there on the court. And so I just wanted to put my little spin on that because I'm obviously not a Spencer Dinwiddie guy. Moving on, this was the deal in which the Knicks really fortified some scoring options off the bench in a deal with the Detroit Pistons. The Knicks received Alec Burks and Bojan Bogdanovic in exchange for Evan Fournier, Malachi Flynn, Quentin Grimes, Ryan Archie Dinakino or whatever, that dude from Nova, the short white dude, and then two future second round picks and cash considerations. So in a nutshell, the Knicks are getting two really solid scoring options. Again, Alec Burks and Boyan Bogdanovich, a guy that's been really coveted by a lot of teams out there. I think Boyan was putting up like basically 20 points a game for the Detroit Pistons. I know he missed a lot of time to start the year, but he's come in and, and even though he's like 34 or something like that at this point in time, shooting the ball at a really good clip, finding ways to get buckets. Burks has had some moments for that Pistons team as well. And I think for what the Knicks gave up, it really wasn't much, right? I mean, really, it's just a bunch of trash at the bottom of the rosters besides Quentin Grimes and a couple second-round picks. I just don't really understand it from the Pistons' perspective at all. Like, I understand that you're a bad team and you're really just trying to accumulate young players and accumulate draft assets. And technically, you did that because maybe Quentin Grimes is a part of your future. But I'm not really sold on that. Like, Grimes is, is a feisty defender. You know, he can shoot the ball at a decent clip, whatever. But... By the time that the Pistons are actually relevant, is, is a role player like Grimes really going to be a part of, of that picture? Probably not. And only getting a couple second round picks when you gave up two pretty solid assets that seem to have real buzz in the trade market, it just doesn't make sense, man. The second round picks are basically useless. You might as well you know package those together and see if you can get a first or something like that. And so I just don't think the Pistons can be proud of this deal in any way, shape, or form. Meanwhile, the Knicks, again, they just fortify their roster over and over again. They've had so many injuries in the front court. Not that this helps them a ton in that regard, but still, they found a way to persevere, and they're becoming a really scary team, and we are certainly not done talking about the New York Knicks on this episode. Moving on, I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to this deal, but the Thunder did go out and make a move, and it's actually a move that my guy Ian Kayanja basically predicted spot on. Really impressive stuff from him. When he was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, we were talking about potential trade targets for the Oklahoma City Thunder. I was been preaching to everybody who will listen that I think they should pick up another big. They did not do that. They listened to Ian's advice and actually received Gordon Hayward from the Charlotte Hornets in exchange for Micic, the point guard uh, from Europe that they just started playing this season, in addition to Trey Mann, Davis Bertans, and a couple second-round picks as well. So let's talk about this deal because, again, it does concern the Oklahoma City Thunder, a team that a lot of people consider contenders in the Western Conference. I'm not sure how many guys out there are a worse injury bet than Gordon Hayward, and that's just really what it comes down to. When Hayward plays, he's awesome. Even earlier this season when I actually was interested by Charlotte quite a bit, when LaMelo was out there and Mark Williams was out there and Hayward was healthy and whatever, I was like, man, like Hayward looks really good. Like He looks like their best player depending on what night you watch him. He's still really solid. He doesn't make mistakes. He plays decent defense. He's shooting the ball well. And then he's hurt again. And, you know, maybe it was one of those phantom injuries where he wasn't really all that banged up. And the Hornets were like, hey, we're going to trade you. Don't rush back. We're not playing for anything, whatever. But he just missed a shitload of time because of a calf injury at this point. Look, I get it. It was a pretty cheap price to pay. You used that Bertans contract. You didn't even have to give up any first round picks. But on the scale of needs on that Oklahoma City Thunder team, I just, 
I'm going to say it until I can't say it anymore. A big man would have been way more helpful for that team. Having somebody to play alongside Chet, having somebody that can come off the bench, rebound the ball, protect the rim, lighten the load on Chet Holmgren so he's not getting absolutely pummeled by a guy like Carl Towns or Jokic or Rudy Gobert in the playoffs. I just think that would have made way more sense for the Thunder team. And instead you pick up a guy who, yes, he's played in some playoff games and yes, he puts up good stats and he's always good when he's healthy. But like Gordon Hayward, I just, I would know better than anybody else that he, you can't trust him to be out there when you need it the most. I mean, look, if he is out there and assuming he is healthy, this could be a really crafty move for the Thunder. I just think they could have done this and gotten a big man. They could have done this and still used a first round pick to acquire a guy like Nick Claxton or something like that. And I think this would have made Oklahoma City a lot scarier. But look, if Hayward plays, who knows? He's talented enough to even be closing games for the Thunder, right? You put him alongside guys like Shea and Chet and Jalen Williams and Lou Dort, and he could fit right in and be a better shooting option than what they have currently in Josh Giddy. So I could see Hayward being really versatile for the Thunder, or I could just see him being hurt and not really being out there at all. So while I do like the move for the Thunder, I just, I don't love it because I think they had bigger needs in the team. Similar to the Mavericks situation, would have liked to see them pick up a backup big instead. So where does all this leave us, right? You guys are probably a bit underwhelmed after going through the full list of all the transactions that took place before Thursday's deadline. And I told you, right, it wasn't the most exciting deadline, but I do think we have some takeaways as far as the biggest losers and the biggest winners of the deadline. Let's start off on the negative side of thing and talk about the losers. And I'm going to kick things off by discussing the Golden State Warriors. You guys are probably like, Nick, what are you talking about? You didn't read a singular transaction from the Golden State Warriors on Thursday. So how could they possibly be on the losers list? And that is precisely why. Because they did nothing and I felt like they really needed to do something. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like I've talked a lot of Warriors this year and how they need to make moves, how they need to go all in. But I really do feel like they would have benefited from at least picking up another big man, somebody that can rebound the ball while hopefully still spacing the floor. And that clearly was not a priority for the Golden State Warriors. Maybe it was just the trade value of Andrew Wiggins was so low they couldn't go out to get a guy like Vucevic, like I mentioned on my last podcast, or really any other big with that contract for that matter. But I do feel like they had some picks to play with. They had some young assets like Moses Moody to play with. There were other moves besides just moving Andrew Wiggins in exchange for a big with a contract that would match that. But either way, the Warriors fell short. And it's just really frustrating to see. I don't feel like they need to make a move as much as I did maybe a month ago or so, mainly because Draymond has been playing at a pretty high level for the Warriors, getting him back in the mix. I think Jonathan Kaminga and his breakout over the last month is really no joke, right? He's been awesome for that team. So maybe they feel like they have the pieces internally to contend. And I don't entirely disagree right like there is still a world where they put together a run and and shock everybody but I I do feel like it's really unlikely and I'm not nearly as scared as Golden State as I've been in past years and I think just a large part of it is the size and the fact that they almost have too many guys right like even if you did like a two for one or a three for one Golden State had the bodies to do something like that like there's going to be a lot of guys that are out of this playoff rotation that might shock somebody and I think that's just going to be the case when they have guys like Gary Payton getting back into the fold here who's been absent for the last few months of play for the Golden State Warriors. Guys like Chris Paul are going to be back in the fold. You know, they have just a lot of guys in this team, and I think they would have really been benefited from getting another big man, and they didn't do that. So I think because of the pressure that the Warriors were under with Steph's prime kind of coming to an end here, and he's still playing at such a high level, it would have been really nice to see them go out there, leverage some of those picks, leverage some of those young assets, and make themselves more competitive for the remainder of the season. But ultimately, they didn't do it. So the Warriors are definitely on my losers list. The next loser we have on this list is going to be the Oklahoma City 
Thunder. Now, I went back and forth between the Thunder and maybe the Mavericks because we've already talked about how I didn't really love those moves. But at least the Mavericks went out and took a swing, right? At least they went out there, probably made their roster better than what it was before the trade deadline. And I can't say with confidence that the Thunder did that. Going back to the Gordon Hayward trade there, it's solid, but I think Micic could have been a real piece for them down the road. Who knows? Don't hate the idea of giving him up and getting a guy like Gordon Hayward who could really fit nicely onto that roster. But again, I just feel like they had such an obvious hole and they have such an embarrassment of riches, of draft capital, where they could have gone out and and acquired really any big from any team, any backup big, really any big in the league was going to be acquirable for the Oklahoma City Thunder with the amount of draft capital that they had. And instead of overpaying or paying 125 cents on the dollar for a guy like Nick Claxton, for a guy like Daniel Gafford, for a guy like Vucevic, for a guy like Nick Richards, whatever, they did nothing. They went out and they got Gordon Hayward, but they didn't address the elephant in the room. And I can't help but feel like that is going to make an impact come playoff time. And so they are on this list as well. Even though they made one deal, and for the most part, I like the deal to acquire Gordon Hayward, I still think Oklahoma City Thunder, for how close they are to being a real contender and for how many assets they have, I think they are still a loser at the traded line, in my opinion. And then finally, I don't know if you guys can sense the theme of what I'm getting at here. The biggest loser of the 2024 NBA traded line is the Chicago Bulls. Again, another team, Nick. Bulls didn't make a move. What are you talking about? That is precisely the point. The Bulls are 25 and 28, and they're probably lucky to even be at that number. They just lost Zach Levine for the entire season due to a foot injury. He's not coming back. You can't move him. I get that. That should make the decision to move on from any of your desirable assets to be that much easier. You have guys on the team that have had noted interest from many teams around the league, the likes of DeMar DeRozan, who's on an expiring contract, mind you. Guys like Alex Caruso. I've heard rumors of him going for multiple first-round picks, and I actually kind of believe it. Andre Drummond, another solid backup big. There's a million contending teams out there that could have used big man depth. Drummond is on an expiring contract. Why wouldn't you move him? Even guys like Vucevic, I think, has some real value. I think that contract of his looks a lot better than it did when he initially signed it or even a couple years ago at this point because all the numbers are going up, and I feel like he's still a really productive player. I just don't understand what the Bulls are thinking. The worst place to be in the NBA is in the middle, is in purgatory, exactly where they are. 25 and 28, not bad enough to bottom out and get a high lottery pick, but not good enough to be anything more than a play-in team. Like, why are you trying so desperately to hold on to the number nine seed in the Eastern Conference? It just doesn't make any sense. And I felt like this would be the year that they finally came to terms with like, hey, look, the season's not all bad. Even though Zach Levine got hurt, even though we're virtually in the same spot we were last year, it's not all bad. Kobe White's having a real breakout. He has some real most improved player buzz. Like the season is not a total failure. Maybe he's a guy that you can develop some, some things around. I'm not that bullish on him, but whatever. Maybe Lonzo's walking. That's great. I mean, he, he, he basically couldn't walk before this season. It sounds messed up, but it's true. He was on a court shooting around. Maybe he comes back. I don't know. There are some positive storylines out of Chicago. And so I felt like this might be the year that they come to terms with exactly where this team is at and just made the decision to move on from all their desirable assets. And they did nothing. And you know, there were some teams out there trying, you know, teams called about Drummond, about Caruso, about DeRozan. Maybe they called about Vucevic. I don't know. But they had at least four 
really desirable assets on their team that could have plugged in nicely on many teams out there that are trying to win championships and the Bulls did nothing and all they're going to have to show for it is maybe some games in the play-in if they're lucky. So they are my biggest loser of the traded line. No doubts about it. Let's move on, get a little bit more positive, and talk about the winners. So winners I'm not as passionate about, but we are going to start things off with the Boston Celtics, a little homer, tip of the cap to my team, because look, I went out there, I said, hey, they're a team with a weakness. We can all see that the weakness is a backup big position. They went out, they packaged together some useless, worthless second-round picks, and they acquired a player that's played in real games that is a solid backup big man for a, a decent teams over the past few years and can come in, address the problem, and strengthen the backup big position. I've talked enough about it. I think it's a big W for the Celtics. The next winner that I have here is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Again, similar situation. I talked about this with Garrett a couple of months ago at this point in time. He felt like they needed to get a backup point guard, somebody that they could trust to handle the ball and get them good shots at the end of games if something happens to Mike Conley, you know, to slow down the pace of the game. Especially in the playoffs, it's important to really prioritize shot selection, especially with a young team. And I think Monty Morris is a perfect guy to fit in on that Wolves roster. And again, they're a team that I was critical of that I don't think is a real contender in the West. And they went out and they made a move that said, hey, we didn't have to give up anything crazy, but we addressed a weakness. We're a better team than what we were a few weeks ago. And I think that because of that, I give the Wolves the benefit of the doubt. And I think they are definitely a winner of the trade deadline. And finally, the biggest winner of the trade deadline, in my opinion, is the New York Knicks. I think what the Knicks have done, not just on Thursday in their deal to acquire Bojan Bogdanovic, as well as Alec Burks. Not just that deal. The deal to acquire OG Ananobi, I'm going to kind of lump in with this because, again, it was a pretty slow traded line, so bear with me. But I feel like that move was just awesome for them. It's not even debatable at this point in time, right? I said it at the time that OG Ananobi is the best player in that deal that has proven to be true. Hopefully Tibbs doesn't kill the guy because he's playing literally 45 minutes a game and he's already been banged up the last couple games and whatever, but OG is unbelievable. He makes lives of the other team's best player in absolute hell out there. He is giving 110% effort on both ends of the court. He's shooting the ball at a really good clip as well. I think there were some question marks last year. Like I was like, look, I know everyone says 3 and D, 3 and D, whatever, but is he really even a good enough shooter to warrant that? So far in the Knicks, he certainly has been. And so when you combine that move with Going out and getting guys like Bogdanovich and guys like Alec Burks who can get buckets and has even already had a stint with the Knicks. The Knicks have like a real 10-man rotation at this point in time when everybody's healthy. And assuming they bring back Mitchell Robinson and, you know, guys like Hardenstein is there and that front court depth comes along, like, they are an absolutely terrifying team. And I really did not think I would ever be scared of the New York Knicks. Like, I put them in Frisky just a couple weeks ago on the you know, tier rankings because I didn't feel like they were that legit of a team and I never am really going to take them seriously as much as I like Jalen Brunson. But they didn't need to make some big flashy swing for a third superstar or even upgrading the Julius Randle spot. No, they just needed a player that was really going to complement their best player in Jalen Brunson, fit seamlessly alongside the guys that they have in place, and fortified their bench with a few guys that can create their own shot. Because we do see that the Knicks have warps, right? Just a couple weeks ago, I was really dialed in for a game in which they played the Los Angeles Lakers, and the Lakers actually got the win, in large part because the Knicks started hot and then just they double-teamed Brunson down the stretch and threw a lot of different coverages at him and really shifted their entire defense to Jalen Brunson. And Brunson had nobody to turn to, right? OG was banged up. Randall's been out. And it obviously was a diminished version of the New York Knicks. But you saw that there was nobody else in that team besides Jalen Brunson that could do 
anything to create their own shot. And now I think you brought in at least one guy in Bogdanovich and maybe two guys in Burks that can do that, especially when you're going to get OG Ananobi, Julius Randle, and Mitchell Robinson back in the fold. They are more than a frisky team. If I were to re-tier them, I'd still put them in one piece away because I'm not entirely convinced they're real contenders in the Eastern Conference, but they are as scary as nearly, they're scarier than Philadelphia in my mind. I'll go out and say that. They might be scarier than Cleveland, who's been on an absolute heater as of late and has won 17 of their last 18 games for the record. But either way, the Knicks are a real team and a real foe in the Eastern Conference, and I be, would be really surprised to hear that just about two months ago at this point in time. So kudos to the Knicks. They are definitely my biggest winners of the deadline. And that just about does it, guys. That is my episode for today. Hopefully you enjoyed the trade deadline recap, and hopefully you've enjoyed one year of words with Wallace. Thank you guys again so much for listening. I don't mean to be too sappy in this episode, but I really do appreciate it. Next week, we'll be coming at you with whatever the latest and greatest is of the NBA and its storylines. We are headed into All-Star break. We only have a few more days left of regular season action before the break. So we'll ex- we'll see. Maybe we'll bring a guest on. Maybe we'll do a gimmick or something like that. I'm not entirely sure yet. But I will be coming at you guys next week. But before I let you go, be sure to follow at Words with Wallace on everything. That includes Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Also, follow at Words with Wallace on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, anywhere that there's social media, you can probably find me there. And I will talk to you guys next week. Peace.